1 through 19 in Exodus chapter 23. Starting with verse 1, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds, in the, dis- blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, for the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beast of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for it came, uh, uh, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labor from the field, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord. First men's conferences. No, that's different. Uh, Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my uh, sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now turn with me to two other places real quick. After we just read that, I know that was a lot, but turn over to Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. Now, you saw all those commands that we just read. You might, re- you might notice that some of them are repetitive and go back to previous parts of Exodus. But the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, look at verse 6. In some of your Bibles, 6 might be bolded. The, the sixth verse may be bolded in some of your Bibles. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 6. They were chosen to be a holy people for the Lord. Special treasure. Now, turn over to 1 Peter 2, 9. Kind of similar to Deuteronomy 7, 6. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see some similarities with Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 1 Peter 
2.9. I'll read one other passage to you. You don't have to turn there, although you may want to know where it is. You know what the... You, we just read these many verses, these uh, 19 verses in Exodus 23, and then I read you two passages that you turned with me uh, in Deuteronomy and in 1 Peter. So you've got Moses and Peter testifying to the same thing, that the commandments of God are to be lived out in the lives of the people that God has chosen or called out of spiritual Egypt, which is darkness, right? Remember, so they're called, you were once a slave or a, a bondservant to sin, and God says, I've called you out of that. Now you're a slave unto righteousness, and you're called to be different. You're called to shine in, in, the, in the world, to be a holy nation and a holy priesthood. Now, uh, Peter is talking to the church and using Israeli imagery, if you will, a holy nation, because I don't know, you guys don't consider our church a nation, do you? But we are called to be uh, like the nation of Israel. We're called to be a holy set-apart group of people. And in Israel, God had told them all of these things, and we're going to continue to see God just continues to speak through Moses chapter after chapter after chapter, laying down for them uh, the law and say, these are the things that I want you to abide in. And later, Jesus would fulfill the law. He would be the fulfillment. That's why he said, as we talked about last week, uh, abide in me, because he is the fulfillment of the law. As we abide in him, we actually abide in the law. We actually are one with the holiness of God. But Israel, later on, would forget all these things, wouldn't they? And by the time you get to uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, you see the calamity, I mean just utter calamity that falls upon the people. And look at what, and I read this uh, for those of you that came uh, in one of the messages that we did on a Wednesday night uh, back with the Prophecy Series, but in Ezekiel chapter 22, God indicts the leadership of Israel. And remember when we just before we prayed, I quoted to you from Joshua, who was both a family leader, being a father, and a national leader, being the leader of Israel. But he, of course, served under the Lord. And we see that Joshua, as a leader, stood for righteousness, and he was an example to all other leaders. And that the other leaders, fathers are leaders, right? Then you have in Israel, that it wasn't just fathers, you remember in Israel they have the 70 judges, right? They have the judges. Most of Exodus 19, or all of Exodus, I'm sorry, Exodus 23, the 19 verses that we just read, the 19 verses that we just read in Exodus 23 are written first and foremost to the judges of Israel. That makes sense? In other words, God was telling the judges, this is what I want you to be. You're to be righteous, honorable judges, and you're to transfer that example to the people in the way you resolve things, in the way you walk, in the way you handle disputes, in the way you judge sin. You first have to be righteous, the judges. And of course, Moses had to be righteous, Aaron had to be righteous, Joshua had to be righteous, the judges had to be righteous. Not perfect, 
They would need the atoning. They would need the sacrifices. All those things, of course, we see uh, that they're commanded anyway, that those things would take place. But Israel later would come to the place that they didn't have righteous judges. The leadership had fallen apart from top to bottom. And by the time you get to Ezekiel 22, God indicts the wicked leadership of Israel. And starting in verse 29, look at how the people now live so opposite of Exodus 23. Ezekiel 22, verse 29, the people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy. They wrongfully oppress the stranger. Verse 30, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. All the leaders of Israel had become corrupt. Therefore, the people had become corrupt. And which is first, chicken or egg? Were the people corrupt, then the leaders, or were the leaders corrupt, then the people? Well, they go hand in hand, because the Scriptures tell us that both play an equal role, because people heap up for themselves the leaders of the teachers that they want, and the leaders also pervert the ways of the people. And you see this in religious leaders, i.e. the priesthood or the pastorate, and you see it in governmental leaders, kings, magistrates, judges, governors, so on and so forth. Verse 31, Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So Moses here is letting the people know, hey, this is the way God wants you to live. And I, I'm, Moses is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking this first to the judges. I'm speaking this first to my under-shepherds. These guys have to uphold righteousness, and they won't let. Now, if judges don't uphold righteousness, then, then wickedness will run rampant uh, through society. I mean, I think most of you appreciate if someone is on the loose for murder, you appreciate when the police arrest them and get them behind bars, don't you? Because that's really, really advantageous to the rest of us. But so are all the other sins that aren't crimes. Because they destroy society from the inside out. They're the bad worm inside an apple that you can't see until you bite into it. And it's already been decaying from the inside out. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, A People Set Apart. A People Set Apart. And we'll look at three things this morning Uh, if you're taking notes, just in bullet point format, righteous, refreshing, and remembering. Righteous, refreshing, and remembering. Now, although these instructions are specifically for the judges of Israel, I think you would agree with me that they are very clearly to everyone in Israel. And do you see a single commandment in here that also doesn't have transfer to those of us in the body of Christ. Because they're exemplary of a life set apart. These are God's requirements for the judges and for his people. Um, they would be a people that would be different than the nations all around them. Uh, they would be a people, again, God pulled them out of Egypt, not that they would look just like Egypt, because Egypt didn't follow God's laws but that they would be different from Egypt and they would be different from the nations of the Canaanites all around them. They would be a people committed to holiness, 
committed to truth and the justice of God. Of course, the byproducts of following God's instructions uh, are really beautiful for us. It prevents a lot of unnecessary pain and heartache, doesn't it? Your doctor can tell you, and he tell, and of course we see these commercials and everything, your doctor can tell you, look, I hope no one has this issue, but a lot of people in America do. There's a lot of people in America that still have a lot of addictions to nicotine and alcohol, right? How are those two things doing on the bodies of Americans? Pretty bad, right? Your doctor could issue a commandment. I command you not to drink or smoke for your own well-being. And a person might say, that doctor doesn't want me to have any fun because I really enjoy this. The doctor says, I, look, I, I, don't de- I don't deny it's not fun. I mean, I used to be a, I was a bartender in college. I did all that stuff. I, there is fun in that for a season. But the doctor says, look, you can do it, but it's the number one killers of people. And people that drink and smoke die younger. Do you want a long life or do you want a short life? So it actually will prevent you from really destroying yourself. So is the commandment a good commandment for the person or is it one to say you will have no fun? No. It's for our protection. And so it is with you and I and all the things that God commands. He calls us to be set apart, to be different. Now, not only will we be closer to the Lord, but we'll be a lot further away from the things of the world. Doesn't mean we're not in the world. Jesus told us we had to be in the world, just not of it. We're to be in it. The Israelites weren't leaving Canaan. They were going to be a light in Canaan. Now, they weren't to Canaan yet. That was, that was still to come. Uh, unfortunately, they will disobey God. It's going to take them 40 years longer to get there. But the whole intention was that they would go there and they would be a set-apart holy nation. But they would begin practicing it in the wilderness. Aren't you glad God gives you time to practice these things? Because tougher times will come, more difficult times will come, and God has us practice righteousness today that we're ready for the next phase in life. But as we practice these things, as we walk on these things, we actually find life. We find peace. And it's amazing, we actually find peace in life through obedience. Now, Peter, Peter says this, that actually the atonement of the blood of Jesus, everything we received is for obedience, that we would become obedient unto the Lord to his glory, and to our benefit. Uh, The complete opposite is to serve your flesh, which is to live in disobedience and self-destructive, right? How many of you have ever prayed for a family member that you're like, why are they self-destructing, right? And you know as well as I do that you're like, look, you're killing yourself with decisions and all these things and say, God actually has a better plan. And we see this plan laid out in the 23rd chapter as a people set apart. Let's look at the righteous aspect here of our, of our outline this morning. Uh, you could consider this something like character in our conduct. Look at verse 1. You shall not circulate a false report. We're to be honest and upright. That the, that the world would, again, if, if if your coworkers, those of you that, that uh, work beside someone every day, or your neighbors, 
or your family members, not just the family members in your home, but the people that know you, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, all that people that know you and come in contact with you, they would believe of you that you're honest and upright. Not that you've never told a lie, because you have, and so have I, but in general terms, they've come to find that you're an honest and upright person. You're not someone that circulates a false report. You're not a gossip. That your word means something. Zechariah 8.19 tells us, therefore, love truth and peace. Do you know that truth and peace go hand in hand? Truthful people are peaceful people. Lying people are not peaceful people. First of all, their own guilty conscience travels with them, but because they lie, they're constantly covering and manipulating. There's no peace there. There's only rest in the Lord and just truthful honest, being upright. Look at verse 2. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You're not, and it goes on, it says uh, in verse, I'm sorry, that was still verse 1, but verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Boy, is that a problem, isn't it? I know we kind of pin this problem mostly on teenagers, but I think a lot of adults follow the crowd too. What do you, what do you think? I mean, peer pressure is something you hear most often referred to as a teen thing, but I got news for you. Uh, at 43 years of age, I've seen a lot of adults uh, bend quite easily to peer pressure. And we're all susceptible to it, aren't we? We're worried about what people think. People will do wrong things just to be accepted at times. But we're not to be swayed by others or what's popular. What's popular means nothing to God. We all understand that. That popularity is a moot point with the Lord. Uh, most of the, all the great people in the Bible were the least popular. Right? They're most likely to succeed because they work for the Lord, but they're least popular. They will succeed under the Lord, but we're not to be swayed by others and what's popular. Uh, James 4.4 4 says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. I tell you what, you don't want to be God's enemy. You do not want the Lord as your opposition. It's a losing battle. You want the Lord on your side because you want to be on His side and following others, following what's popular. Well, everybody else, the world is going this way, I guess. You know, th this is why many churches are now watering down the Word. They're going with the crowd. They're going with what is popular. Well, society says we can't reach them unless... God, does ne God has never needed to be relevant. Do you understand that? God does not need to relate to you. You need to relate to Him. He will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same in 2012 as He was in 1912. And He was in 1812. And he was in 500 B.C. He's not going to change. But boy, when we change, we now have him with us, going before us. I'd rather have him as our shield and rear guard than actually trust in the foolish things of this world that can't really help you. He goes, uh, goes on, Nor shall you turn aside, in verse 2, to testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. 
You know, once people follow a crowd, and once they have compromised, they begin to become corrupt. See, once, once you're waist deep in sin, you might as well get neck deep, right? It, 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 after a while, you just become able to rationalize everything you do. Before I was saved, I remember being able to rationalize all the things that I did. I could think of them back, you know, each and everything. I, I, had, a, I had an excuse for everything. But after a while, when you accept the things of this world, you follow the things of this world, uh, you'll even become a judge that would pervert justice. You turn a blind eye to doing what's right and even put innocent people in harm's way. Proverbs 2.9 says, You will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. You're committed to justice. You know, I, I see this in homes. When parents start to follow sin, they're unable, they're unable to really teach their kids to turn from sin, so they pervert justice. They actually let things go unchecked and their kids will become even worse than the parents because they followed after the world, a crowd. Then they begin to pervert justice, and they can't... Well, their guilty conscience says, how can I correct them when I do the same thing? Well, hopefully they'll figure it out. Guess what? They don't until it's too late. And perverting justice uh, takes place in homes. It certainly takes place in the highest levels of government. It takes place... Uh, in religious leadership, we're to be committed to justice. And it starts with being committed to honesty and committed to God and not following the world or following a crowd. Verse 3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man. And not even, you cannot let people's circumstances alter what God shows is right or wrong. It doesn't matter if a person's poor or rich. God says as judges, just because someone's poor does not give them the right to go rob somebody. Boy, our, our country really is messed up in this area, by the way. Uh, we really are. We, we don't understand right from wrong, and we believe that people's circumstances gives them a right to actually feel a certain way. God says it does not. They don't have, you don't have a right, well, because I don't have what I think I need, I should have a right to take from somebody else. God says the judges of Israel cannot show partiality. We, sh we can't show partiality. You don't show it either way. You don't show partiality to the rich. Uh, the New Testament talks about this. When people come in the church, do you give the best seats to the wealthy? That's problematic. Never show partiality to someone whether they're rich or poor. You treat them all the same. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox, donkey going astray, you should surely bring it back. Well, this one uh, goes against the grain, doesn't it? You, even, even your enemies, you show impartiality to. To say, you know what? It goes on to even say uh, in verse 5, um, even the one who hates you. The Proverbs talk about heaping coals on their head, right? You're actually showing them kindness. Jesus talked about this. It's funny that the Pharisees didn't seem to remember verses like this, did they? 
<laughs> they only remember the, uh, if a tooth gets knocked out, you knock out their tooth. They, they somehow forgot these, which look a lot like if someone hits you on this cheek, turn and give the other cheek. The Pharisees seem to have missed this all together. But even way back in the Old Testament, God told his people, a set-apart people, different from the Canaanites that were about revenge, that you actually, if you saw your enemy's ox, you didn't go cut the throat of it and eat it or destroy it or get rid of it. You would actually take it back to them. And boy, what an open door to present Christ when you're kind to people who don't like you. Isn't that true? If you walk the ox back to the neighbor that hates, hey, I found your ox out here. You don't have to say, I know you hate me. Just say, I found your ox out here, and I, I knew it was yours. I, I'll help you get it in the pen. They might not say a word, but that starts to lead them on the road to conviction. More than, hey, have you seen my ox? First of all, you'd have to be dishonest there. No, I haven't seen it. You know? God is showing us that a set-apart people walk like Jesus. Well before we see Jesus on the scene, these are illustrative of the way his character would be. Uh, goes on, verse 6, You shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in your dispute. You would know how to preserve the value of justice. You're not led by your feelings. Feelings of partiality, first feelings of they hate me. You know the ways of justice. You value these things. Psalm eleven seven says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. The Lord loves righteousness, therefore we love righteousness, and His countenance becomes our countenance. And we're able to walk in these things. Verse 7, Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. Now, remember, Looking at this is specifically first to the judges. The judges were the first line of defense for innocent people dying. The judges. Think about our own nation. Who was it that validated Roe v. Wade? Judges. Supreme Court. They were the line of defense for the defenseless. Way back there in the early 70s, they completely took a broad hand and said, nope, we're not going to defend the defenseless. And look at what we've been reaping since. They were judges. Judges. God says the judges of Israel would be the defenders of the innocent. They would, not, they would not kill innocent people. And they would be given the wisdom of Solomon to understand, now, if it was a real crime, God would give them the wisdom. Remember, if you walk in righteousness, God will give you wisdom. The reason why today we can't figure out a crime unless there's DNA evidence is wisdom is gone, isn't it? You've heard me many times say of Charles Spurgeon, he said, discernment isn't knowing right from wrong, it's right from almost right. In the body of Christ, many people can't tell right from wrong, or, and certainly not right from almost right, but judges, again, the farther you get away from following the ways of God, you no longer 
can tell right from wrong, and you can't decipher between the rights of a woman's body and the unborn baby. You can't... Yep, it's not a living thing then, which of course goes against everything in the Scriptures. Those of us who love the Lord, we're to be committed to life and the protection of innocent. And I, and I speak of, uh, of abortion here every day, every day in America. Every day. Did you know this? Every day in America, more unborn, innocent little Americans are killed by abortion than the number of Americans killed in, on 9-11. Every day. 365 days a year, every single day, more unborn little Americans are killed than all the Americans killed on 9-11 every single day. And the number of American babies killed by abortion each year, each year, not since Roe v. Wade, each year, every year the number killed is roughly equal to all the U.S. military deaths of every war from the Revolutionary War till now. We've, about 1.2 million men and women have died in America's wars. And that's about how many are aborted every single year. Judges were the line of defense, weren't they? If they don't see, if Supreme Court doesn't think it's right, why would the people think it's right? Because they're supposed to be, they got the black robes on, they're supposed to be the ones that actually know right from wrong, but they didn't know right from wrong. And so now it falls downhill. But also in verse 7, Look at the last uh, sentence, for I will not justify the wicked. Judges know that even if their fellow judges walk away, even if the people walk away, this is why Joshua said, as for me and my house, he goes, look, you may all abandon God, but I will not. Because I know that for me and my house, our protection is not dependent on Do you know that your protection in your home is not dependent on what everyone else does? Isn't that great to know? That you will will be protected for your own decisions. They will rise and fall with theirs. See, we need to be aware that God will not overlook wickedness. Nobody is getting away with it. Does everyone understand that? Nobody's getting away with it. It looks like people are getting away with it. We can get frustrated like people are getting away with it. And oh, by the way, then you remember all the things you did this week, and you're like, thank you for mercy, right? It's kind of, you have this constant, uh, uh, you, you hate wickedness, but then you're thankful that God is really gracious to you. And that's how you're able to be gracious to people that really are violators in every which way of the Lord. But he will repay Isaiah 66, 16 says, For by fire and his sword the Lord will judge all flesh. The Lord's going to judge all flesh. No one, not the Supreme Court that passed Roe v. Wade, not Hollywood that, uh, you know, it's amazing to me. Uh, just since, um, you know, I knew that there would be an outlash uh, against uh, Americans having guns and things like that. And you look at Hollywood and you look at the violent, wicked movies they make. I mean, it's nothing but, like I saw a commercial, chainsaw killing and all this other stuff. And They make this garbage, which is nothing about murder, right? And then they're the ones 
standing saying, hey, you know, you, you, if, we, if, we, if we could only get uh, all of the hunters to give up their guns and stuff like that, you know, all this kind of nonsense, uh, it, it's upside-down righteousness. It's upside-down justice. It's hypocritical, isn't it? All of these things, um, violence and bloodshed and all these things that, that the world produces, and then the only issue that you really are dealing with is people's hearts, right? It's people's hearts. That's what you're dealing with. Again, the bottle doesn't pick itself up out of air and draw itself to someone's mouth. Someone's hand grabs bottle, Right? It's always the heart. God says, look, my judges, my leaders, if you stay righteous, the people will likely stay righteous. If you pervert justice, if you walk after these things, you can bet, rest sure. By the time you get to Ezekiel 22, what did God point out? He said, the leaders, I couldn't find a single leader that was righteous, and the people were walking in wickedness. They were all in it together. But right here, Moses is saying, hey, Keep these things close to your heart. Live in such a way that you're set apart. Don't be like the world. Verse 8, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Um, We're to be unmoved by covetousness. And we're not to be tempted by all the worldly and dishonest temptations. Um, I remember when I, uh, I just left working for a Canadian company back in the late 90s, and I started working for Microsoft, and I flew out to Seattle for two weeks of uh, training on contract negotiation, and I remember we were in this one training, and uh, we're talking about contract negotiations, which can be very brutal uh, in a business sense, and, and long, and, and arduous, and, uh, and someone from another country, I won't name the country, raised their hand, and this was a serious question. They said, when do we move to bribery? They were totally serious from another country because in my, in my class was people from probably about 30 different countries and they were totally serious like, hey, this is all great, but when do we just move to bribery? Because that was normative where they came from. That was a normal course of action. Like, and God says, hey, in the nations around you, bribery is normal. Payoffs. You know, this is why you see justice perverted around the world that people can get away with all kinds of things because justice in some countries, hey, you give me a bottle of gin, you're out of here. You give me, uh, you know, 100,000 rupees or whatever it is, you know, you, then, you can, then you can go. But we're not to be tempted. That's the, the, when you take a bribe, it's greed. It's covetousness. It's desiring things that God hasn't given you. But we're to be righteous judges as fathers in our homes, as you in your workplace, in all areas. These same same qualifications are given to pastors and elders in the New Testament that they can't be greedy for gain. If you're someone greedy for gain, God can never put you in a position of leadership because you could be easily tempted to take what doesn't belong to you. We're to be unmoved by covetousness. We're uh, to be completely able to say no to the dishonest temptation of the world. We're to know and believe. We have to believe this, and I, I hope you do. We have to believe that honesty, purity, and holiness have eternal value that transcends anything material. 
that nothing material could sway you. You could not. Can you be bought is a good question for you to ask. Can you be bought? You, you, you'll, hear, uh, you'll hear slick, really arrogant businessmen say, you've seen it on movies, everyone has their price. You ever seen that? They always say it like that guy on the DeSecchi's commercial, or everyone has their price, or something like that, you know? Not everyone has their price. Some people say, no, Jesus paid the price, and you can't, I, I can't be bought. You want to have that kind of integrity, don't you? That you can't be bought. That you can't be moved by covetousness. Uh, verse 9, you also shall not oppress the stranger. You shall know the heart of the stranger because you were strangers. You know what it was like to be an outcast, God says. It's the children of Israel. You at one time were slaves. You were oppressed. You were an outcast. But because of where I brought you, and this is where we can be, you know, I can recognize the most vile things, but at the same time, because of the Holy Spirit that now lives within me, I can still reach out to people that are full of vile things, right? Every time we go to Bonaire, there's one group we go to, and I can't really mention uh, the nature of the group, there's one gr- group we go to that, you know, if I didn't know the Lord, I probably wouldn't be able to reach out and love for things they've done. But we can be compassionate because Christ has been compassionate to us, right? That we too were so opposed to the Lord that we can actually reach out and say, you know, God can forgive you of anything and mean it. And not because we can say it in our flesh, we say it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We mean it, but the the principle here is that you shall not oppress, but actually that you should be a compassionate person to all, to neighbors, to strangers, here and abroad. How many, how many, if you look at this verse, not oppress the stranger, you know the heart of the stranger. And it's actually, when we get into the next section here, uh, talking about leaving things for the poor. What are you doing for people that are less fortunate than you are? Anything? Have you given anything? To people? Have you gone and served anyone? Have you really? Re- this is one of the things the New Testament calls us pure and undefiled religion, is to help those that don't. Uh, I'm not for the social gospel. <laughs> if you know me, I don't live for the social. I live for the true and living gospel. But part of the true and living gospel is that you would be helping children that can't even eat in Africa and in Southeast Asia and around the world, even in this country too, that you would actually. That's why the scriptures talk about alms. Part of our giving is not just tithes and offering. Alms are for the poor. That you specifically would actually set aside and make sure that you have a heart for the stranger and the downcast and the widow. And Let's look at the next section, refreshing. These laws of the Sabbath, which actually is just a continuation of, of the righteousness of the first nine verses. Uh, these laws of the Sabbath... Starting with verse 10, again, if your notes uh, under the bullet point refreshing, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave, uh, or they may eat of what is left. The beast the field may eat, in like manner do with your vineyard and your olive grove. And then, not just the years here, but also verse 12, six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, the son of your female servant, 
and the stranger may be refreshed. Refreshing. This Sabbath uh, principle of the Sabbath. You know, it's not just God's list of don'ts. It's his list of do's, right? You, you saw all the things. Do not pervert justice. Do not lie. Do not circulate a false report. Do not follow a crowd. Do not. But then God says, I'm not just a God of things you don't do. I'm a God of things you replace them with, that you do. If you just, if you get saved and all you do is stop doing, you'll be back to sinning in no time flat. Make sense? Because God says, all the energy and passion you used to put in. Remember before I got saved, you guys have heard my testimony. One of the things that really, really, I mean truly, it almost kept me from getting saved and, and going to hell is I truly had to count the cost because to me Sundays, in my mind, Sundays were about playing volleyball, sand volleyball, going on surfing trips, doing things like that, hanging out with my friends, and I had to count the cost that I actually would be willing to surrender that time to God. Now, here's where it became an easy proposition for me. I would either spend eternity in hell or live forever with Jesus. And I was like, why did it take me 25 years to come up with this no-brainer? Right? Because life is but a, as Randy talked about, yeah, life's but a vapor, right? It's, it's funny, the older you get, how things fade. I haven't played volleyball in years now. And if I do, I'll pay for it the next couple of days, Right? Can't go surfing anymore ever since I had neck surgery. I love to snow ski. Can't really do those things anymore. God just makes these things less and less important. But he replaces them with things of eternal value. And you can't convince people, unless they actually come to Christ, then they're convinced, that God actually will give you a hunger and thirst for these things. And he'll replace what are the don'ts with the do's, that our life would not only be refreshed in observing these things and living this way, but will actually refresh other people. The Sabbath principle here, uh, it's not just, um, it's applied here uh, not only to the days of the week, but we see this suspension of labor is applied to the land. The land was to be tilled or harvested for six years. The seventh year, it was supposed to not be touched at all, at least by the farmer. But whatever was laying there, the beast of the field could have it, the poor of the land could have it. Even God cares about animals. Isn't that interesting? He does. The righteous is even kind to... Uh, his, his animal, the scripture tells us. But Matthew Henry said that this was to remind the children of Israel of their dependence upon God, their great landlord. You ever thought about it, God is your landlord? He is. All that you have belongs to him. That's why we're stewards or servants. Everything you have, every penny you make belongs to him. Every cell in your body belongs to him. Not every thought we've had belongs to him, that's for sure, right? But all that we have, he is our great landlord. He was the great landlord of the children of Israel. Somewhat related, you may recall of this six 
And then the seventh principle, remember back in chapter 21 that the Hebrew slaves could only be kept for how many years? Six. What happened on the seventh? They were to be set free. And their debts relieved. Totally set free. That principle of refreshing. They were to be refreshed. I don't know about you, but you're pretty refreshed when someone lets you go free, right? And then when you say, well, I can't really go because I still... No, you don't owe anything. Your debts are gone. You're, you're free. That was the principle of refreshing. So Sabbath, both re- it's not just rest. Rest is part of it, but refreshing. Notice that the Scripture says here that they, the poor, the animals, and yourself would be refreshed. God was clear that the land had to come to rest uh, on the seventh year. Uh, By tradition, um, many in Israel began accomplishing this. Uh, What they would do is they would cultivate six-sevenths of the land uh, at any any one time. Only six-sevenths of the land would be used, and they were constantly rotating six-sevenths of the land that they would have that that each piece of the land would get a full year rest. And uh, that was the way that they had begun to observe it. Now, the failure of Israel to give the land its rest, eventually they stopped giving the land a rest at all. You know, isn't it neat to see God still bless his people like Chick-fil-A that give the chickens a rest on Sunday, you know? Isn't that great? Even the cows get, uh, from their commercials, I guess, get a rest on Sunday, you know? You don't have to worry about eating more chicken on Sundays because you can't go there. What I think is amazing about their decision, too, is they really are cutting off the biggest profit base because no one endorses Chick-fil-A more than people that go to church on Sundays. And yet God continues to bless it. I don't know if you've ever seen, statistically, they actually, there's some metrics you can look at for fast food restaurants. They actually are number one in categories of profit per, it's amazing stuff. What, what they, their profitability in a 24-hour day, they don't, they don't, McDonald's is number two to Chick-fil-A in a, in a couple of metrics. But uh, it's interesting that God really does bless those who say, you know, this I know that there's not, a, there's not a New Testament law on this, and yet we get the benefits of these principles. Isn't that true? But Israel, their failure to give the land a rest on the Sabbath, it actually, did you know it determined the duration of their captivity? They had to go 70 years into captivity. That's how much God despised them not giving the land a rest. Where they refused to give the land a rest, he said, all right, Every year you didn't give the land a rest is going to count towards your captivity in Babylon, which it did. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36, 21. But here we have in the, um, not only the land, we have, of course, uh, the work week. We have it revisited from the Ten Commandments, commandment number four, right? Honor the Sabbath, the, the law of Sabbath rest, which according to Exodus 20, remember when Moses gave that commandment, uh, well, actually, the Lord gave it. Moses just wrote it down. But as the Lord gave it and wrote it, and Moses writes it down, it mirrored God's blessing and sanctifying the seventh day of creation. Because remember, he did all the creation in the first six days, but then he rested on the seventh. Now, God doesn't get tired, so he didn't need any rest. 
He was setting an example that the seventh day was to focus on the creator, not the creation. Make sense? That God was saying, I did all the creation, and I want you to work in it, be fruitful, multiply in it, but on the seventh day, I want you to look at the creator, not the creation, Israel. And that would be different than the nations around them. The nations around them probably had become like us today. We think if we're open seven days a week and never, ever stop, we can make more money, build bigger houses, better stuff, and never stop being successful. And God says, yeah, yes, true, that might work, but you'll also have more ulcers, you'll have more this, you'll have more that, you'll have more issues, you'll have more health issues, you'll have no peace, you'll have insomnia, and all these other things, but good night, you'll have made more money. Right? When we rest from our labors, from our daily concerns, from our tasks, from the many errands we have, and we set aside a day to worship the Lord and to actually rest, He refreshes us and renews our commitment for the coming week. I'm not talking about people that that worship God one day a week and live like the devil the next six. That's that's that old honky-tonk religion you've probably (laughs) heard on the country music stations, right? I'm talking about truly God's people that really take a day to rest, to worship with their hands raised and their voices raised and, and to enjoy God's word and to fellowship with other believers and really rest and really give their bodies a rest and their minds a rest. And then the rest of the week coming up, they're people of prayer. They're, they're more gentle. They're more compassionate. They don't walk away from what was Sunday. Sunday becomes part of their daily walk. But I'm telling you, Six days shall a man work, seventh day rest. You could actually, you, if you get more done in six days and give God the full day, and if you can't do a, 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 a Sunday, you know, God made it clear through the Apostle Paul, you can use any day of the week. You just need to set one aside. That principle, you'll be blessed today as the children of Israel would have been blessed and were blessed in ancient times. You know, the early church, they met on the first day of the week, Right? We have our Messianic brothers and sisters like Brother Sam. They, they still, their Sabbath is Saturday, which is the best rendition of a Sabbath day we have in the Gregorian calendar because in, in the uh, ancient Hebrews, the seventh day was based on a lunar calendar. It was just the day number seven, right? It wasn't Saturday. It was Sabbath, meaning seventh day. So they would count six, then to number seven, six, then to number seven. But our Jewish brothers uh, in Christ, those that are messianic followers of Yeshua, they will set aside Saturday as the Sabbath. We set aside Sunday. The early church met on the first day of the week, uh, and they would gather to pray and to uh, and really acknowledge all that the Lord had done through the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll remember in just a few minutes about the Lord's Supper. But ultimately, because we don't have the commandment to meet on the seventh day, like they did in Israel, but we have the principle to set aside Sabbath, a Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, right? Jesus is your Sabbath rest. And even if you got called into work, if you're someone that's on call and you got called in today and you couldn't be here with us today, Jesus is still your Sabbath. 
rest. He's the rest we enter, and we enter it through salvation, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, remember they were mad when he did, did some good works on the Sabbath, like he you know, actually did miracles, drove them crazy. He's like, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Do you not understand? I am the rest. But notice that Israel's obedience to rest the land and to rest at the end of the week was always to give refreshment to them, to others. It's an overflow to the animals that they didn't even know were out in the woods would be blessed. To the poor that didn't have, that are rest. And I look at it this way. When I really give the Lord one day a week to just rest in Him, to worship Him and rest, I'm more valuable to everyone else the next six days. I don't do it so I can go out and make more money, do more great things, pat myself on the back, all this stuff, and you shouldn't either. You want to be more of a channel to bless other people the next week. I see a lot of people, and true, this is in the church a lot, well, I'd love to do that, but I'm too tired. I'd love to help, but I don't have the time. You start giving God the time, and he'll give you energy you never had before, time you haven't had before, resources you haven't before. You give him your finances, your time, your talent, your treasure. He will give back to you and says, all right, not only give you rest for your body, rest for your soul, but I'll actually enable you to refresh other people. If you've never had the chance to bless and refresh other people in a multitude of ways, this is your year, God is saying. Come unto me. Have faith in me. Follow me in all areas of my commandments, and you'll be refreshed. Last thing as we come to a close, and I'm not going to spend much time on this. Uh, it's more uh, for Israel, but we see some principles here in just wrapping up with remembering. These last few verses in verse 14 through 19, uh, I'm not going to read them all, but these feasts... You see that three times a year they were to keep a feast to the Lord. These feasts included the Passover of unleavened bread, the first fruits, and the ingathering feast, which later became Pentecost. Fifty days after Jesus um, ascended, you had Pentecost. And so these feasts were these markers that could not be moved. Just like you couldn't move the Sabbath, the Sabbath had to be the seventh day. You could not remove these feasts. Not only could you not remove them, you were required by God to participate. You notice that all the males had to come. They would represent the household. There's leadership again, guys. Guess who represents, just like Joshua? Dad does, (laughs) right? The household would be represented, and these would not be moved And they were to cause the children of Israel to never forget. That's why she was remembering. God never wanted them to forget that I'm the one that gives you the harvest. I'm the one that released you from Egypt. And I am the one that allows your harvest to actually come forward. I'm the one that makes the stuff grow. I'm the one that gives it to you for food. I'm the one that released you from the bonds of Egypt. God says, everything that you have, your freedom and the blessings come from me. And that's why Paul would later say, when he talked about our prayer life, 
and everything with thanksgiving, right? Oftentimes, we go to God with this long list. God says, start thanking me first, and I'll start answering your prayers. Don't bring me your long list until you thank me first. Remember what I've already done for you, is what God's saying. If you will not remember what I've done, I will not be pouring out a blessing upon you going forward. And of course, it would get worse than that. If they would violate this, they would end up following and going after idols. They would actually replace these feasts with pagan feasts. Right? If I, if I said to you this morning, which I did, hey, I might quarterly do a prophecy teaching at once a quarter. It's this kind of principle. It's not forgetting. It's remembering what God has already done and what he's going to do next. He wants us to not forget these things. Uh, the commandments of the feast, to keep these feasts was a test of their obedience. Remember I said it's not just God doesn't replace the don'ts. These are some do's, right? Instead of beach volleyball, go to a Bible study, right? Instead of wasting all of your time on the internet, get in my word. Instead of doing all this, go serve someone in a nursing home. But I'd rather be uh, waiting on hand and foot. God's like, I know, that's your problem. I want you to go wait on someone else hand and foot. And when you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. He commanded that these things would be done, these, these observances of the feast. Uh, the details would later be given in the book of uh, Leviticus. Uh, there could be, you can see that there was no leaven uh, to be uh, allowed in this. Unleavened bread. Leaven was a, a, a picture of sin and corruption. God says, I want you to know that I want your lives set apart. There can't be leaven in it. I'm going to send the perfect sacrifice, but until that time comes, you need to know that the leaven has to come out of your life. Don't forget it. Remember these things. Keep these, uh, keep these markers. Keep these uh, reminders. And then lastly, in the, verse, in the 19th verse, he finishes, the first of first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord. You know that when you are thankful, it's easy to give back to God. It's easy. I know that sounds hard, but the longer I walk with the Lord, it is much easier for me. It truly is. Now, God will take you to new challenges. Don't, don't think it stops when it becomes easy to give back to the Lord. Because as soon as you hit a threshold, you say, Lord, I'm able to give this. I can fast this day. I can serve over here. I can give financially to you like I've never done before. God says, all right, so now I'm going to take you to another level of faith and service. Because you'll never stop growing. He'll continue to grow you. But the first fruits, it starts with giving your first fruits. Giving your first fruits to the Lord of your time, of your talent, your treasure. And say, Lord, you've been so good to me. How could I not but give this back to you? Right? Even when we get to heaven... What's going to happen when you get your rewards? What are you going to do with them? Stuff them in your back pocket? Put it on your head? Where does it go? Right back to his feet. Isn't that amazing? Even in heaven, where you're getting what you worked your entire life for, you're going to give it straight back to the Lord. But you won't be begrudgingly doing that. You'll do it with a big, gigantic smile on your face, right? Saying, thank you. For giving your all for me. He wants us to be a people set apart. This was not the heart and the attitude of the nations around them. They didn't live like this. And this was the way Israel was going to be a light and a witness to them. Let's, 
bow our heads in prayer.